uh, dive into the Gospel of John. Uh, look at the first 18 verses this morning. This is John's kind of prologue, his introduction. It's the first 18 verses. And um, I mean, we took time to have our own introduction, but if John was doing the introduction, well, this is his introduction right here, the first 18 verses, okay, to his gospel. And it's a very well-known passage of scripture, really. This is an amazing part of scripture right here. Like, you all know it on some level, even if you're not familiar with the scripture. And it's interesting because John, like, he, he gets into, he doesn't introduce himself he doesn't share his credentials. He doesn't take any time to like substantiate his part of the story or any reason why we should trust him. He just goes for it, guns blazing. Is it really hot in here? Can we open that back door? Is that open? Okay, sweet. It's open a crack, okay. Mercy, can I get you just to crack that one a little bit too, okay? I don't want to, it's like hot, man. I'm cooking. Okay. So John just jumps in, man. He goes for it, guns blazing. And there's something that's, familiar about this passage it feels familiar it's like when you open your bible and you go to the book of genesis and and it tells you that god spoke into the darkness that he spoke into the chaos and he said let there be light and there was light and you read the book of genesis and when you go there for the first time i mean sometimes we get overly familiar with it in in a not healthy way but there's something startling about genesis chapter one that it's so instantaneous, it's so immediate, it's almost like violent, man. Like God turns the lights on in darkness. He speaks and there's light. And it's, it's surprising and it's like there's this unexpected feel to it if you feel the kind of cadence and pace of the scripture. And the feel is exactly the same with John's gospel. Check it out. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Like, holy smokes, John. That's a lot to take in right there. It's kind of like Genesis to me. It's like surprisingly, I don't know, like abrupt in a good way. This is like zero to 100. You ever been on one of those roller coasters? Remember a number of years back when we went to Disney World with our family? And we rode the rock and roll roller coaster at, I think it was at Epcot. And that thing takes off zero to 60. And before zero to 100, before you know it, you're upside down and you're twisting. And you're still shocked by the takeoff. This is John's gospel to me. Okay? Takes us right up the steep mountaintop of human thought. And it's breakneck speed. And it's white knuckle. To me, that's the feeling. Listen to it again. You got to feel what he's saying. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It's like, holy smokes, John, take a breath. But the reality is, is we're about to move from the shadowy questions regarding creation into the substant reality of the person of Jesus Christ. And John starts at the beginning Imagine the beginning, like go back in your mind to Genesis. It's kind of hard to do that. Girls, I'm going to ask you to be a little quiet for me, okay? I can hear your conversation. Don't have to do that very often. Imagine that, to go right back to the beginning, and it's hard to imagine. There's something, you know, there's something in me, and I know it's in you, that it's, it's like, well, it just feels like things have always been. You know, they always exist. They're always going to go on. It's like, 
It's hard to, we live in a, in a time and it's like we just think about our day. We forget that even our nation's only 150 years old and that's a, a blink of an eye in, in the span of history and it's hard to think about the beginning. Haven't things always been just as they are? But that's not true. Scripture tells us that's not true. Science tells us that it's not true. That the universe, that the earth, that the world had a beginning. That it wasn't always here. And it's difficult for our finite minds to comprehend that. That there was nothing and then there was a universe. And scripture tells us that it was God who created the universe. And what John tells us is, and what we see in the book of Genesis, is that the active agent in God's creation was his spoken word. The word, the Greek term that John uses is the logos. The logos. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And in each successive day of creation, in Genesis 1, we see God relayed, relied on the creative uh, on his creative word, and his word was, was the power and the force that brought forth his creative work. And John says, in the beginning was the word, logos. And the word was with God in eternity past, which is seemingly kind of strange as he says that, because it's like, you know, John is introducing us to the word as he says this, and it's like, as he talks about the word, it seems like he's speaking about something that's distinct, from God, that's different from God, that seems independent. How can God's word be independent of himself? I mean, when God, when we speak about God's word, I mean, a person's word or God's word is an expression of their nature. It's an expression of their personality. Naturally, as my words come out of my mouth, my words are an expression of the, the thoughts and intents of my, of my heart. And mind. And yet in John 1, what we see is when John talks about God's word, the word is not simply just an expression of God's heart, not simply just an expression of God's thought, but we see it's something distinct that's almost apart from him, that's separate apart from him, independent of him. It feels to me, though, it, it can't be, so it's dependent upon him and yet independent from him. How can you separate the eternal God from his word? How can you make that separation? Well, the answer is on some level you can't, and yet John does. The word of the eternal God is eternal, and John, what he does is this, is he presents the word of God in a relationship with God. What the heck, John? What's the picture? He says this, he, speaking of the word, the logos, he was with God in the beginning. The word translated with literally means this, face to face. It's interesting, that same picture is in Genesis chapter 1. When it says the spirit of God was hovering over the waters, the spirit was face to face with the waters. Here John tells us the word was face to face with God. Talking together looking at one another like two people, like two friends. Think about yourself with a friend or with your spouse, speaking, talking, looking at one another's faces. And literally, John says, that was the relationship between God and his word, face to face. 
He was with God in the beginning. And again, that's so interesting because, you know, obviously God's word is an expression of his of his heart and thought. God's very nature and person is revealed in his word, and yet his word is distinctly separate from him, and his word is in a face-to-face relationship with him. And so that means his word, though distinct and separate from him, must express his nature. His word must express his heart. His word must express his thought. And somehow there is this relationship that is face-to-face in the midst of it all. And so what does John tell us about the word? He says this about the word. He said, the word's eternal. He was with God in the beginning. He was before the beginning. He tells us that the word is a relational, that the word is in a relationship with the eternal God, that it's face-to-face. And he tells us that the word is, is divine itself. He says, uh, the word was with God and the word was God. So we learn this about the word right from the start of, of John, that the word is eternal, that the word is relational, that the word itself is divine. And John isn't there yet, but let's just, let's go there. Let's have the spoiler alert. <laughs> I, I mean, I hate to do it. I kind of feel bad, but you know who the word is, Right? You know who it is, right? It's Jesus. John's talking about Jesus. And what's he telling us about Jesus? He's telling us about the nature of Jesus. He's telling us that Jesus is eternal. That Jesus is relational. And that Jesus himself is divine. That he's God. That he's God. The conclusion is obvious. Jesus is God. And, you know, there's really no higher statement that you can make about Jesus. The New Testament doesn't declare anything greater than that right there about Jesus, that he is God, that he's God. And John doesn't give any qualification. You know, there's no limitation. There's no restriction set on the word or on Jesus no, no, no special rules in the midst of this. It's not like, oh, he says, well, he's a bit like God. It's not like, well, he mirrors God. It's not like, well, the fullness of God was in him. No, John just says it flat out. He was God. He was God. He was with God in the beginning. The word was with God, and the word was God. The same God. And so the truth is, is that what you can say about God, you can say about Jesus. You think about all the things that we say about God. You can say the very same things about Jesus because the word was God. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. You know, to those who question him, Jesus said this before Abraham was, I am. No exceptions. All things were made through him. He was before all things. And there is no room left for any exceptions in this passage. All things were made through him. You know, maybe just consider your life or my life for a moment. It's like, where does my life come from? Where does your life come from? How did you come to exist? 
Someone say, well, there's, you know, there was a biological act between my mother and, and my father, and, and I, came, I came to exist, and I would say, well, that's partially correct. But what John tells us is that all things come from Jesus. All life comes from Jesus. And so that means this, that the actual right answer is this, that you're the creation of Jesus. And Jesus used the biological act to bring you forth. You're his creation. There's no exceptions. All things that were made, John says, all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. You know, to me, when I think about that, that you and I are, we're God's creation. That gives me value. It gives your life value. It gives you an identity. You're, you're made through him. You were made in his image. You were made for him. We have value, every single person. And, and, and if that's the case, then it means if I have value and I'm made by him, it means my life should have a purpose for some reason. There's something that he's taking me towards. There's, there's a reason for my existence if he has made me. And John tells us, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. John says, in, in him was life. Jesus is the source of all life. All life. Again, no exceptions. Physical life, animal life, natural life, intellectual life, spiritual life. It's in him. The whole of the universe of living things was brought about into existence by Jesus and he sustains it all. He holds it all together. As the word, he creates. That's what we, what we read here. As the word, he creates. He brings life. But as the life, we're told that he's the life. He also does this. He creates, but he also sustains. He made us and he sustains us. He created this universe and he holds all things together. I read it said this way. As the word, he declares God. As the life, he communicates his essence. As the word, he is God without us. And as the life, he is God within us. That's why Jesus said this to his disciples. You know, he was revealing his nature. That he made us and he sustains us. He said to his disciples, without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. We exist because of Jesus. But the crazy thing is, is that apart from Jesus, you can exist. But the truth is, apart from Jesus, you cannot have life. There's no such thing as life apart from Jesus. I mean, if we, we speak in the spiritual sense of life, the, the word of God tells us that he who does not have the son of God does not have life. If you don't have Jesus, there's no life in you. If you don't have Jesus, you don't even know what life is. You know, there might be some nice qualities about you. Might be kind of a nice person. Might be sort of good looking or, I don't know, you might have good, you know, you might have display all the correct behaviors that people like or, like you said, kind of nice or amiable or whatever it is. But if you don't have Jesus, if you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. You don't have life. 
And you remember this, that we talked about this last week, that the reason why John wrote this gospel, he says, so that you would know that Jesus is the Son of God, that you'd believe in him, and that by believing, you would have life. To experience real life, you have to believe in Jesus. You have to put your faith in Jesus. Life comes by yielding our lives to Jesus. By going to him who is the source of life. He's the, he's the word. He, he created life. He sustains life. And we're to go to him who is that source of life and say, Jesus, apart from you, I can do nothing. Apart from you, I can do nothing. Jesus, I need you. I need you in my life, Jesus. Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I reject my self-sufficiency and I embrace that life of Jesus dependency. I want to rely on you, Jesus. I want to make you the Lord of my life, Jesus. I choose to stay close to you, Jesus. You know, as we chip away at our lives, you know, maybe you've made that choice already. You know that most of you here have. You've made that choice to follow Jesus and as you chip away at that life of you know, self-sufficiency and self-dependency and you learn to grow in Jesus' dependency and learn to lean upon him, it becomes more and more obvious the more you know Jesus that he is who he claimed to be. It becomes more and more obvious. You know, Michelangelo was known that when he would, when he would work on a, on a statue, when he'd be making the image that he, was, that he was crafting out with his hammer and his chisel and he'd be knocking off hunks of, of marble. He would speak of the marble that was dropping to the ground and he would say this, as the marble wastes, the image grows. And that's the picture for us, that as the self-life gets knocked off and we become more like Jesus, our understanding of who he is grows more and more. Paul said it this way, he said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me and the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What's John telling us? He's telling us this, that if you desire life, then you have to go to the source of life. Because though all may have life because of him, not all have life through him. We have to come to Jesus. And so what does John tell us in verse five? He says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And you ever just been in pitch black? It's pretty rare that we're like in pitch dark, isn't it? Like just blackness. And all it takes is like the smallest flicker of light. Maybe you... You light a match and all of a sudden, there's no, it's no longer darkness. I mean, just, just a little bit of light and the darkness is no longer dark. Because light pierces through darkness. And it's crazy, you know, it's just like, uh, we were joking around, me and some, Ernie and Amory this morning, because they were, they were moving around because of where the sun was, you know. Because the sun pierces through the darkness in this natural kind of, pure and lovely and gentle way that we love. Us sunshine coasters are like, woo, the sun's out today. Sky's blue. But you know, when you think about the sun coming up or light being turned on in, in, in a dark place, there's nothing 
violent about the way that light drives out darkness. It just, it just gets turned on and then it's just pervasive. It just spreads, spreads everywhere. And, and, and it's kind of a bit shocking maybe if you've totally been in the dark and the light gets flicked on, but it's not violent. It just kind of shocks you at first maybe. And John says this about the light. He says, the light, speaking about Jesus, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can do nothing about it. Can darkness stop light? It can't. Light always wins over darkness. And there's no greater contrast really in life to think of than that of light and darkness. You know, the Bible speaks about darkness and it talks about the darkness that can come over a person. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the heart can be darkened, that the heart itself becomes darkened, blackened, when we don't acknowledge God. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that the human mind, that our minds can be darkened in their understanding, can be darkened in their thinking. And, and Paul actually says this in Ephesians 4 verse 18, that we can be alienated from life in our thinking because of the ignorance and the hardness of our own hearts. Paul's saying this, that the darkness of heart leads to a darkness of mind. It's interesting if you think about it because it means that people can be affected by two kinds of darkness. People, people can can have mental darkness and they can have a moral darkness in their heart, a darkness of heart and a darkness of mind. When, when your mind is dark, when there's darkness in your mind, it means this, that you, what, what happens? You can't, you can't distinguish between that which is real and that which is not real. You know, there's lots of brilliant minds in this world, lots of brilliant, brilliant people who reject the existence of God. It's like, how can that be possible? Look at how brilliant that person is. They can understand this and understand this and understand this. And then they reject the reality of God. There's a, there's a darkness over their mind. They can't distinguish between what's real or, or not. You think about the newspaper. It's like, uh, I don't know why, but they like print the horoscope in there every week. It's like, don't you know that's not real? <laughs> and yet people love to read it. It's like there's darkness over their mind. They can't distinguish between what's real and, and what's not real? So there's mental darkness and then there, there's moral darkness or darkness of heart. And in a moral darkness, it means this. It's that, you, that your heart is unable to distinguish or to discern what's actually right. Your mind can't distinguish what's real and your heart can't distinguish what's right. How do I make choices that are good? How do I make choices that honor God? How do I make choices that lead to life and lead to a heart of peace? And for those in mental or moral darkness who don't know what's real and who don't know what's right and they're living in darkness, I would say this. If you just begin to look at Jesus, if you just begin to look at Jesus, light will begin to enter. The darkness can't stop it. The darkness of your heart and the darkness of your mind cannot stop the light if you will just look towards Jesus. Look to Jesus. We actually didn't sing it this morning, Ron, but you know, I saw the light. 
We look to Jesus. And moral and mental confusion cannot put out the light of Jesus. Moral and mental darkness cannot extinguish Jesus' light. But you have to do this. You got to look to him. You got to look to him. Now verse 6 says this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now this is not John, the author of this gospel, that he's speaking of. John, the writer, speaks about another John. It's John the Baptist. John the Baptist, of, of whom Jesus said this. He said, of those born of women, none is greater than John. Why did Jesus say that? Because John's job was this. His calling, his mission from heaven was to announce the coming of Jesus. That light was coming into the world. And, and John's ministry was to identify the Messiah. To point people and say, there he is. That's the one. We talked about that last week. And he prepared the people for the coming of Jesus. And John, our writer, tells us that John the Baptist bore witness about the light and that he was sent from God to do that. And clearly, John tells us this. It's interesting, you know, every time, every time uh, John the Baptist is men mentioned in this gospel, he's downgraded. It's like John the Apostle doesn't want us to get confused between John the Baptist and Jesus. He's always raising Jesus and he's always lowering John the Baptist. And so he does that right away. He says, he was not the light. He came to bear witness to the light. He came to identify Jesus. He came to bear witness to the light who was coming into the world. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So here's what we've, we've come to understand here as we, as we come through John's gospel. That life comes from the word, from the logos, from the word of God. That the word is distinct and separate from God. It's a, it's a person who shares his nature and identity, and who also is God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. And life is manifest through Jesus, the word, the logos. And John tells us that John the Baptist declared, the word is coming into the world. But the world, even though it was made through him, was not necessarily willing or ready to receive him, to recognize him. But what does darkness do with light? Can't stop it. Darkness cannot stop light. It cannot extinguish light. But that does not mean this. Or it, doesn't, it doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that darkness will willingly receive light. Darkness can't stop light, but darkness doesn't necessarily willingly receive light. And John says that's the picture of the world. The world was not willing to recognize him. The world was not ready to receive him. The world did not recognize him. That was true before his birth. I mean, if you think about it, the scripture tells us, Romans chapter 1, that 
that we should be able to identify just from looking at creation, this world, that there's a God and we should turn and worship him and recognize where is creation. That was true before the birth of Jesus. Jesus was in the world through all life. All the marks and signs of his nature and identity were already there. All life comes through him. He sustains the universe, holding all things together by the power of his word, but the, but the world did not recognize that. And so he came into the world, and they missed that. They missed his birth at Bethlehem. And, and I, you know, I guess I can understand how people, we could miss. I understand that. We could miss it. You know, before he comes in the flesh, we could miss it in our darkness and in our blindness. But you'd think when he'd come in a form that we'd recognize, in the form of humanity, in the flesh, prophesied, foretold, all of these prophecies to identify him, and still, they missed him. They didn't recognize him. Even his own mother and his earthly father, Joseph, didn't recognize him. At 12 years old, he wandered off, went to the temple. When they realized he was gone for a number of days, they went looking for him. They found him in the temple. And what did, what did, they, say? What did they say to him or what did he say to them? He said, did you not know I'd be in my father's house? And they didn't recognize what he was speaking about. In Nazareth, they didn't recognize him. They said, isn't this the carpenter? They thought he made tables. He made the trees. You know, they thought he made stools. He had made the stars. There was, a, there was a nation, one nation in the world. If there was one group of people, the people of Israel, that should have recognized him, it was them. And for the most part, they missed him too. And here's the problem with that. Here's the problem with missing Jesus. And I think this is an important part of this text. The problem is this, is that if you cannot recognize Jesus, you cannot receive Jesus. If you can't recognize Jesus, you cannot receive Jesus. And there were those, and there are those today, who in their mental and moral darkness struggle to recognize him, cannot recognize him, and hence they reject him. But then there are those in their mental and moral darkness who see the light. They see the light piercing through. And they say, what's that? What's that light? And they begin to recognize him. And they open their hearts up to him. And because they recognize him, they can receive him. The light of Jesus pierces the darkness. Do you see it? Can you see it? The light of Jesus pierces the darkness. If you can see it, then you have to receive him. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. Born of God. What happens to people who recognize Jesus? John tells us here. If you begin to recognize Jesus and you receive him into your life, say, come into my life, Jesus. 
what happens? That's a good question. Well, John tells us two things happen. Two things happen if you will look at Jesus and receive him. One has to do with the condition of your life and one has to do with the position he gives you. Condition and position. Firstly, let's talk about position. Jesus changes the position of those who look to him. He changes their position in life and he gives them this right. The right to become children of God. The right to become children of God. That, this is important because it means that, that having an identity as a child of God is not universal for all people. It doesn't belong to everybody. It's a right that's given when we look to Jesus. Identity as a child of God is for those who believe in Jesus and receive life in his name. When you believe in Jesus, you have the right to be a child of God. You have the right to be called a child of God. Then you can call God your father. You can actually say that about God. He's my father. Now that you've brought me, Lord, into your family, I can call you my father. Galatians actually tells us that. Galatians 4 verse 6 and 7 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Something begins to happen in your heart. You become a child of God. You actually say to God, Father. It's like, what the heck? Why would I call God my father? That's not natural. But it's because we're no longer slaves, but sons. Paul says, if a son, then we're heirs through God. So that's a change of position. We can be called the, we can be called children of God. We've been given the right to become children of God, but there's also a change in your condition. Because you become a child of God by being born into God's family. To be born of the Spirit, to be born again. We're going to see this throughout John's Gospel. It's a strange thing to think. Maybe you've never heard this before. You sat in church, you've heard it all your life. But if you've never heard it before, listen to this. It is possible for a man or a woman to be born twice. Say, what? Yes, you can be born twice. Just as you were born physically, so you can be born spiritually. When you were born physically, it was because th through your mother's womb, Jesus gave you life. But what you need to know is that you can be born again. And when you're born again, spiritually, what happens is this. It's not physical life outward. It's spiritual life inward. That life happens, new life happens inside of you. Spiritual life inside of you. Born again. You recognize Jesus. Light's coming into the darkness. I look to him. And say, Jesus, come into, my, come into my life. And he gives you the right of new position. You can be a child of God. And then he changes your condition. You're born again on the inside. New life. And you know, when that life of the Spirit is born inside of you and you're born again, it, it's like starting life all over again. How many of you remember when you were saved? And it was like, life again. It's like everything is new. Everything, is, I'm seeing the world in a whole different light. Seeing everything in a whole different light. Born of God. 
born into his family, calling God my father. When the light of Jesus shines and someone steps into that light, something happens because there's life available in Jesus. Look at verse 14. John says this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John's uh, synopsis of the, birth, the Christmas story right there. The word became flesh, he says. The word became flesh. The eternal, relational, divine word became flesh, human. He was the same logos. The very same logos that was with God in the beginning. That same divine being, fully God became fully man. Well, there's a mystery for you, eh? Let's move on. <laughs> I'm like, how do you explain that, though? Seriously. I, I, I came across this as a bit of a paragraph. I want to read it to you. I, I, I like it, though, just speaking of the logos, the word of God becoming fully human. It's from F.B. Meyer. He said this. Though confined to time and space, he kept his identity with him whose being is beyond either. There was no break or, ces or cessation in the essential oneness of his personality, even when he stooped to be born of a pure virgin mother. But as far as we can understand it, though in the essence of his being he underwent no change, yet he voluntarily gave up the divine mode of existence that he might assume the human and might bear it with him through death and the resurrection to invest ultimately with the divine glory that he had with the Father before the worlds were ever made. The Word voluntarily became flesh. He became flesh. The Word had a body like yours, like mine. He knew what it was to be hungry. He knew what it was to thirst. He knew what it was to be tired or to be surprised or to be sad or to experience anger. And John says this, he, he became flesh and he dwelt among us. The, really the better word, the biblical word is this, that he tabernacled. He tabernacled amongst us. That's, that's what the original language expresses. He tabernacled amongst us. Think about the Israelites wandering in the desert. They set up the tabernacle, which was the place of God's, God's presence. And, it, and that tent was there with them in the center of their camp. And all that that symbolized regarding the presence of God with his people was fulfilled in Jesus. He tabernacled amongst his people. He tabernacled amongst us. I think it was Solomon, he was building the temple. I can't remember if it was Solomon or David. I think I'm pretty sure it was Solomon. He said, he, he, he said can God's presence actually live in this temple? <laughs> the heavens can't contain you. Can you come and dwell here? Will the logos actually live in a fleshly body? The heavens can't contain him. He's their source. 
How can that be? Or just think about it this way. Will the Spirit of God actually dwell in me, a man? How can that be? These are mysteries. But they're realities. Realities. God came and dwelt amongst his people in that tabernacle. Jesus came and dwelt in a fleshly body. And thankfully, that's true because the Spirit of God comes and dwells in you and I. He tabernacles with us. And these bodies of ours, they're, 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 they're frail tents. But again, look at verse 14. And the word became flesh. And I'm going to say it, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That word glory actually is that Old Testament word, Shekinah. The Shekinah glory. It's the manifest presence of God. Like like when the children of Israel saw the presence of God come into the temple and fill the temple. Remember, the priest couldn't stand. Remember, if you were with us on Wednesday night, Moses could not enter the presence of God. It was so thick. It's the Shekinah glory of God. Came and dwelt among us. Tabernacled in human flesh. And what happened? What happened when Jesus did that? He just radiated God. He radiated God. People listened to the words that he said. They said, I've never heard anyone speak like this man. People watched the things that he did and they said, who raises the dead? Who makes the blind to see? Who cleanses the leper? I've never seen anyone do what this man's doing. He radiated God. John tells us, and John witnessed him, John says, grace and truth emanated from him. He was full of it. It was overflowing out of him, grace and truth. People looked at him like John the Baptist, and they said, that's him. He's the only one, the only begotten son. That's him. Has to be. He emanated God, radiated from him. You'll never see that in anyone else. John said he was full of grace and truth. That, that means this, that Jesus has everything you possibly need. He is full of grace and truth. He is full of the unmerited favor of God, grace. He is full of truth. He's full of reality. He's reality. And the supply of his grace and truth cannot be exhausted. John says he's full of it. It's a fountain that never stops. It's a well that can't run dry. He's full of it. Full of grace and truth. And he's longing to give it away. That's the amazing thing. He's just longing to give away his life. Longing to be the source of life for those who will recognize and receive him. Verse 15 says this. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. John cried it out. He shouted it. If he could have climbed on rooftops, John shouted it from the rooftops. That was his calling from God to identify and say, this is him. This is him. 
from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. The picture is there is wave upon wave. Did you go down the beach in that storm there a few weeks back? That was awesome, man. We went down to Georgia Beach. Dorta and the kids were down there. It was like those waves were rolling in, and it was power. And it was wave upon wave. And John tells us that the grace of God is like that, that God's grace to you and his grace for you is wave upon wave. You know, maybe you've experienced his grace in the past. I just want to tell you this. I just want to give you this challenge that it's a really unfortunate thing for Christians to rely on past grace. It's tragic because God's grace is wave upon wave. He has grace for you today. He has new things for you today. He wants to pour the waves of grace upon you. He's full of grace and truth. It does not run out. It does not run dry. Look to him. John says in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's the first time he calls him by his earthly name, Jesus. Because Jesus is the name that he was given when he was born and took on human flesh. What we discover here is his eternal name before fleshly existence was what? The word, the logos. And this verse really here is a, a good contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, if you're trying to understand Old Testament and New Testament, John 1.17 helps you do that. It says the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Look, the, the law demands of you and it shows you your shortcomings and then Jesus does this. He comes with an offer and says, look at I know the law is telling you come short, but I'm sufficient for you. You come to me. I'll bring truth and grace into your life. Verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That's an amazing verse that just tells us that the word again is God distinct from God and the word Jesus makes God known you guys know that o- over the years I, I worked down at the log sort out, out, in, out in Langdale and a number of years back one, one of my jobs was uh, George isn't here this morning but I'd relieve George one day a week and I would be the startup guy and it was an early morning, and especially in the winter, it meant going down in the pitch of black before there's much happening in the town of Gibsons, and driving down, unlocking the gate, getting into the shop, and begin to get things ready for when the rest of the employees would show up, fire everything up. And one of the jobs was this. One of my favorite parts was to turn on the stadium lights. <laughs> I'd have to walk across the yard and it would be the pitch of black and in the winter it'd be slippery and icy and there's debris to trip over and logs and potholes and I had my little flashlight and walk across the yard and then I'd walk 
into this shed on the other side and, and I'd grab these knobs and kunk, the sound was the best. Kunk, and it was like there was so much power there was noise <laughs> as the switch was turned on. And those lights would come on and it'd be dim, you know, at first. But then they'd just rise and the power would come until you thought you were standing there in the daylight in the midst of darkness. And I want to tell you that Jesus is shining in darkness and it might seem dim to you. It may seem dim to you, but if you will wait in his presence and look to the light, it will get brighter and brighter and brighter until you see so clear, say, I can't believe I ever had a doubt. I can't believe I ever questioned. I can't believe I ever wondered. It's so clear. The darkness cannot stop the light of Jesus. And this morning, as he's declared, he's shining his light on every one of our hearts. In our moral darkness, our our heart darkness, in our mental mind darkness, he's shining his light. And the question is simply this. Will we respond to the light? Will we recognize he's the one who gives life? Will we say, Jesus, I, I don't fully understand, but I'm beginning to recognize and so I, I, I want to receive you, Jesus. I want to invite you into my life. I, I welcome you. Would you come and bring your light into my life? And if you, if you do that, the promise is this. He's going to change your condition and he's going to change your position. You're going to become a child of God. You'll have the right to become a children of God and you'll be born again. Spiritual life will be birthed inside of you. And so this morning, I, just, I would just fail to give you this opportunity. And so I just w- want to invite you to bow, bow your heads, close your eyes, each, each person here. And, and I'm going to ask the worship team to quietly come up here. But I, I want to give you this opportunity. Maybe you're like,